0: Give yourselves a round of applause. What an incredible week we had here, Christmas Wonderland. Another one in the books, and uh, man, all the numbers that you saw on that screen were all made possible because of the faithful uh, generosity of those who give to the Lord through Life Church Buffalo. You know, 100% of the you know 2,500 plus gifts that will be opened up on Christmas morning by those 468 children. We're all purchased because people tithe and they, they give to the Lord week in and week out. And as a church, we've made a decision to set aside 10% of every dollar that comes into this ministry. And that's what we use to fund all of our missions and outreach efforts locally and around the world. And so this is you know, one of the things that probably every year when I think about all the things that God has accomplished through our church, Christmas Wonderland is one of the things that makes me the most proud and the most grateful to be a part of this church to be your pastor. Thank you for your faithfulness and for your generosity. And you, you all often hear me say that behind every number is a name and behind every name is a story. Well, I wanna share one story with you of one of the people that you saw the number on the screen uh, who experienced a blessing from your generosity this week. This woman says, I just wanted to share an email to say thank you very much for the Christmas help that, my, that I got from my daughter tonight. I'm so grateful for you guys because now my daughter will have a few gifts to open on Christmas morning and she wouldn't have had anything to open if it wasn't for the gifts I received from you. We just got out of a very bad domestic violence situation with her father and we had to leave everything behind for us to escape to safety. And unfortunately, I also lost my job due to him driving his car through the store I was working at. I've been struggling to find help for Christmas and so I'm very grateful that I was able to get a few nice gifts from you. Again, I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. God bless you. Isn't that awesome? That's just one story. We've received many emails from people who were here this week, and uh, again, thank you to everyone who financially supports the ministry of this church, and thank you to the, you know, 300 and some of you that volunteered and served this week. It was incredible to see the army of red shirts both before and during the event, and afterwards with cleanup and and teardown. Uh, it was just an awesome week today we are continuing a series I began last week on Advent, something we've never done before. And we learned last week that Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is translated from the Greek word parousia, which means an arrival or coming. And so we learned last week that Advent is just as much about looking back to the past at at Christ's first coming as it is a reminder for us to turn ahead and look forward to his second coming and to ready our hearts for that. And in the same way that people in the Bible were waiting for this promised Messiah to come, we too all have seasons of waiting and Advent is very much a season of waiting. And we learned last week that while we wait, we have to be reminded of the fact that you are an important part of God's plan. We remember that God's plan is bigger than you or me, that waiting on God is trusting that he has a plan and it requires that we surrender our plans to him And lastly, that even while we wait, God is still working. And so if you weren't here last week and you missed that message, I would encourage you to catch up with us and watch it on our app or on our YouTube channel. Today, we're going to talk about how do we have hope while we wait? How do we have hope in the waiting? See, hope is a future-oriented faith. Hope kind of looks to the future and pulls us into tomorrow, doesn't it? When you think about our lives, even, and the things that we hope for, we, we try to get good grades in high school in the hopes that we'll make it into a good college. You know, we, we go to college in the hopes that we'll one day get a good job. We, we get a job in the hopes that we will be able to pay off our student loans from college. You know, if you're single, many people hope that they will one day find someone that they could spend the rest of their life with and get married. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Some people who are married, you know, um, hope that they will one day have children. Some people who have children hope that those children will one day leave the house (laughs) and maybe even bring back some grandchildren. We all have things that we hope for. Life has a way of requiring hope. To me, hope is what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us moving forward. And Advent teaches us something about hope. It teaches us about how to wait with hope and to help with the waiting, specifically at Christmas time, many people have adopted the use of Advent calendars. Uh, I shared with you guys last week that prior to my research in doing this uh, series, I really had no context for Advent because I never really heard much about it growing up. And so the only knowledge I had of it was all of these Advent calendars I saw going on sale at this time of the year in just about every single store. Calendars like the one I saw on um, Amazon this week, just like this one here. Uh, This was one of the most popular ones that was sponsored by Amazon. In case you're interested and you'd like to buy this, this is only $14.95 on Amazon. You know, 4.4 stars with over 8,000 reviews. You can get three of them for $35 if you want to give some, you know, to your kids or grandkids. But, you know, the point of this is that it kind of helps pass the time as you're waiting for Christmas morning. Each day you wake up and you open up another door or a window of this house and you get a chocolate. You get to eat the chocolate and it helps the time pass by. Or like me, I grew up in you know a time when uh, the schools that I went to always had us do a Christmas chain. How many of you know what I'm talking about? alternating rings of red and green construction paper and you'd put a number on each ring and you'd bring that thing home and by the time you got it home after it was in your book bag it's all crumpled up and partially ripped but you know mom hangs it up in the hallway or on the banister of the stairs and you know every morning you wake up as a child and you're counting down the days for Christmas and so before you even brush your teeth you're running to that chain and ripping off another one you're like okay one last day till Christmas morning And while these things are all fun ways to kind of help pass the time, you know, as we wait for Christmas morning, how many of you know that when it comes to the things that we wait for in life, the things that we hope for, there's not always a date attached to them? When it comes to a lot of the things that we're waiting for and hoping for in life, we don't really know when they're gonna happen. And rather than counting down the days, it feels like we're counting up because we don't know when we're gonna get the job. We don't know when the pay raise or the promotion is gonna happen. You don't know if or when the ring is ever gonna come. You don't know if or when the baby is gonna come. You don't know if or when that relationship is gonna be reconciled. You don't know when you're gonna exit this season of hiddenness and development. You don't know when you'll be able to use your gifts. See, we all have things in our lives that we're hoping for and waiting for, and with a lot of these things, we can't control the circumstances, we can't fix them, we can't make them happen, and so a lot of times the waiting can last so long it feels like not yet is turning into, well, maybe it's not ever. So how do we have hope in the waiting this week As Christmas Wonderland was wrapping up, I got to strike up a conversation with one of our volunteers that served at Christmas Wonderland, and he is part of our Sunday morning dream team as well. Many of you know him. With his permission, I'm sharing his story. His name is Michael. He's one of our ushers here, and if you didn't know any better at first glance and just first meeting Michael, you would never know some of the pain he's experienced in life because Michael is a... Super happy guy, joyful, always a smile on his face, faithfully serves here every single Sunday, you know, loves to serve, loves God, loves the church, loves to help people, you know, find their place in the auditorium here. And But once you, if you ask him his story, you'll quickly discover that he's he's gone through a lot in life. And I've known bits and pieces of his story, but this week I got to learn a little bit more detail of it, and I learned that for the past almost 13 years now, it's just been it feels like one one hit after another, starting with when he came home from work one day almost 13 years ago and the mother of his children and his children, he was living with them, um, had packed up and left while he was at work. Came home to a completely empty house. Kids' rooms, dressers, closets, all emptied. And uh, once he realized what had happened, that she had taken the kids and left without a notice, without hey, we've gone here. Like He didn't know where they were. He just collapsed into a puddle on the floor and curled up into a fetal position and sobbed for the next three days. Didn't get up, didn't eat, didn't go anywhere, just sobbed at the prospect of, am I ever going to be able to see my children again? And uh, he would eventually reconnect with the mother of his children and make some arrangements where he would be able to See them on a semi regular basis. And so things sort of stabilized there. And he would eventually meet another woman who he would marry. She would become his wife. And unfortunately, that marriage would become anything but, you know, a restoration story for Michael because it was just a rocky relationship. And she would leave him not one time, not two times, not three times, but four times. She left him. First three times, you know, Michael kept believing, hoping, praying that she would come back, begging, you know, I'll do anything, counseling, whatever, like, and after the fourth time, it just got to be too painful where he was like, you know what, if you want to leave, I can't do this anymore. And then the hardest part of the story for me when he was sharing it with me was the fact that three and a half years ago now, uh, I think it was January of 2020, he told me that his kids who are now... I think 14 and 17. um, but three and a half years ago, they basically came to him and said, Dad, we don't we don't want to see you anymore. We don't want to talk to you anymore. We don't want a relationship with you. We don't we don't want you in our lives anymore. And he initially, you know, tried to contest it through the courts. They had been being fed a lot of false information from their mother, and it was just, you know, very volatile and Eventually, at the advice of his attorney, he decided to relinquish custody, and for three and a half years, he hasn't heard a word from his kids. As a dad, I can't even imagine the kind of pain um, that that would be, to have the children that you brought into this world, that you've loved on, that you've provided for, that you've prayed for, tell you that they don't want you that they don't want relationship with you. And see, Michael is, in essence, saving a seat for his two daughters, saving a seat for them in his life, that, you know, he's praying and hoping that God will one day provide an opportunity for these relationships to be restored. Praying for an opportunity to have them come to church with him one day, even, and sit next to him and to see what he gets to be a part of week in and week out. And if you've been, if you follow me on social media, then you may have heard about some of the things that my family has been going through this week as well, as we talk about saving a seat. My mom's husband, Jimmy, um, was rushed to the hospital Monday night, was very dire, and wasn't sure what was gonna happen. And initially, they, they were fearing that it was a ruptured aneurysm and that he had a brain bleed, um, the next day, after some scans, uh, they changed the diagnosis and said, actually, we think it might be his kidney cancer that he had removed several years back that had metastasized, and now there was a tumor in his brain that was bleeding that was going to require uh, brain surgery. We were scared. The next day, more scans, another changed diagnosis, and they were like, actually, we're, it might not be cancerous. We're like, okay, but it is still, it looks like it's a benign tumor that will still need to be operated on to be removed uh and then it changed again like almost every day it was like new information changing information and on friday we all kind of rejoiced when my sister called me from the hospital and said the doctor just left and and said that it's it's not not only is it not cancerous it's not even uh, a benign tumor they think now that it's a, a cluster of blood vessels that he's probably had for a really long time that just began to bleed and uh there's the good news about that is that he won't require brain surgery, and he's not going to need any kind of radiation therapy, which is amazing. We're all kind of rejoicing and all believing that God is doing a miracle as we pray. Now, he's not out of the woods yet. I mean, he's still got some um, hurdles to overcome. He's still in the hospital. Um, But as a family, we are all praying and believing that by Christmas time, you know, Jimmy will have a seat at the table. We're believing that he's going to come out of the hospital and be fully healed and fully restored. But when I, I listen to Michael's story and I think about what's happening with, with Jimmy, um, I don't know that I'll ever look at an empty seat the same way again. See, because to me, empty seats are now a symbol of hope. You know, every Sunday morning, I, I come to church, I have a ritual. I, I call it my, my pregame ritual. It's my Sunday morning routine. And, you know, I wake up really early. My first alarm usually goes off around 415 And I try to be the first one to church most mornings, most Sundays I am. Some Sundays, this Sunday I was not. Um, I usually get here by around 6 o'clock. And the first thing I do uh, after I drop my stuff off in my office is to come into this room and walk up and down every single aisle and lay hands on every single chair and pray for the people that will sit in those chairs. I pray for you every Sunday that God would meet you where you're at, that he would speak to you, that you would experience his presence, his power, that, uh, you know, that God would provide you whatever it is you're, you're looking for, that he would show himself faithful to you. Um, but after hearing Michael's story this week, I'm realizing that while I pray for those chairs, while I pray for you, many of you are sitting in those chairs right now, I'm also praying for the people that aren't here. The empty chairs that represent people in your life that you're hoping for and waiting for will one day be sitting next to you. See, we all have, to me, this this empty seat is now a symbol of hope. Every time you save a seat for someone that you're hoping for and praying for and believing for, it's like Advent, a season of expectation, a symbol of hope. And we all have empty seats in our lives, And maybe for you, you know, it it represents someone like Michael in your life who you're estranged from and you are longing for that relationship to be reconciled. And in so much as it depends on you, you've done everything you can to fix that, but you can't force the other person to be willing to come to the table and re-engage in conversation and start the process of working towards reconciliation. Or maybe for you, it's someone that you're relationally close to, but who is spiritually still far from God. And you can't change their mind about who Jesus is and why you've decided to follow him and so you keep saving a seat. And that represents your desire for them to come to faith in Jesus. Maybe for you the empty seat represents a loved one in your life that is struggling with addiction. And you can't do anything to change their situation, but you hope. there's an empty seat maybe for you you're lonely and the empty seat represents someone anyone to come into your life and just be able to share life with just to go out to coffee with and have a conversation with and you know have dinner with and maybe you're hoping that that friend will eventually become someone that you could you know spend the rest of your life with because you're lonely and you you want to get married and and you've had an empty seat next to you for a lot longer than you would have imagined And maybe even as you look down the row that you're sitting in, you would see an empty seat or two between you and someone in your row who is maybe rather attractive. And if that person doesn't have a ring on their finger, maybe you would just kind of scoot over and sit in that empty seat right now. Actually, no, don't do that on second thought. That's maybe a little sketchy. Play it cool, you know. Maybe after service, though, can strike up a conversation with them, you know? I'm just trying to help you guys out here a little bit. <laughs> See, but we all have empty seats in our life. We all have things that we're hoping for, and here's the deal. I think that God wired us this way. I think we are hardwired to hope for things. Hope is why we root for the underdog in sports. And on that note, go Bills. Go Bills. <laughs> I'm not used to the Bills being the underdog. It's been frustrating, but you know what? They're my ride or die team. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan through and through, and I'm gonna continue to root for them. They're my team. Hope is why some women like to watch Hallmark movies at this time of year. For the life of me, I can't figure it out because every single movie has the same plot line. (laughs) Just different people. Hope is why some men, you know, head out into the woods and go hunting November and December. But then again, maybe it's just so that they don't have to watch the Hallmark movies that their (laughs) wives are watching. I saw a couple hands go up there. (laughs) See, hope is what keeps us going. Hope is what keeps us alive. I heard about a medical study this week as I was preparing for this message that was done a while back that studied and followed 122 men after having had their first heart attack. 122 men that they kind of followed and studied and they evaluated them on their level of hope. So check this out. Of the 25 most pessimistic men of the group, 21 of them died within eight years of their first heart attack. However, on the flip side, the 25 most optimistic men in the group, only six of them died in that same time period. So literally, losing hope increased the odds of death by over 300%, more than any other risk factor, including blood pressure, heart damage, or cholesterol levels, which to me just proves that it is better to eat the steak and be hopeful than eat the kale salad in despair. Can I get an amen? Amen. Glory to God. See, that study to me just kind of affirms what Solomon wrote thousands of years ago in the Proverbs when he wrote, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. See, when there is something that we're hoping for that is delayed and that we never get to realize, it crushes the spirit. I've heard it said that you can live up to two months without food, up to four days without water, You can live a few minutes without oxygen, but you can't live a moment without hope. Hope is essential for life, and hopelessness just brings darkness. Speaking of darkness, how many of you have ever gone into a float tank? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. This is a growing trend in in, the spa industry over the last, I don't know, five or six years, maybe longer, I just heard about it four or five years ago, Uh, I'll try to explain it to those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, but basically it is a sensory deprivation chamber where you can go into a spa. Uh, Many of them around Western New York do this now, and for either 60 minutes, 90 minutes, or two hours, um, in this sensory deprivation chamber, this tank, if you will, uh, there is about 18 inches or so of water in it that has about four to 500 pounds of magnesium salt that's dissolved in it, which makes, the, makes you super buoyant. So you disrobe, you get into the tank, you close the door, and you literally just float there for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours. And there's supposed to be a ton of health benefits as the magnesium absorbs into your skin. It's kind of like an Epsom salt bath where you know, they say that a 90-minute float is equivalent and has the same health benefits as to like four to six hours of sleep. I can't list all of the health benefits but it's it's pretty remarkable as you just kind of rest in this. And, and some spas do it differently than others, but the first one I went to, it was about four years ago, I was in a really stressful season and my wife wanted to surprise me. And so she bought us both, you know, a spot at this spa, you know, a 90-minute session. And so we go in, having never been there before, and they take us into the rooms and they explain to us, okay, this will be your room over here, Kelly, and this will be your room over here. And, you know, you'll disrobe, you kind of rinse off in the shower, then you get into the, into the tank and then you close the door behind you and you just... You know, you just lay there, and you're so buoyant. Like, you know, you, you, you float on the top of the water, and you fall asleep, and it's amazing. And now, when I, some, like I said, some spas do this differently, but the one we went to took sensory deprivation very seriously. Some, you know, you go into a room, and there's some light coming in under the door or whatever, but this first one I went to, it was literally like a tank that had a heavy steel door that when you close, you had to have like one of those round things that you kind of turn to close it. And so when when you close this thing, I'm telling you like you couldn't see an inch in front of your face. It was pitch black, no sound whatsoever. And so you lay down and all you hear is your breath and your heartbeat. And how many of you know that when there is no other sounds at all, your heartbeat is really loud? But for me, like being in pitch black darkness, like shutting the world out, I was in heaven. I was like, oh, this is amazing. When I got out, I asked Kelly, I'm like, what would you think? Wasn't that amazing? She's like, no, I hated it. <laughs> She's like, as soon as I shut the door and it was pitch black, I instantly got anxiety. And so she goes, I had to, open, I had to keep the door open a little bit to let some light in. Because in the darkness, it just felt like, you know, the room was closing in and I just, I couldn't handle it. And when the Bible talks about hopelessness, it uses the analogy of darkness a lot because for a lot of people, when they are hopeless, it feels like you're in complete darkness. You can't get your bearings straight. You feel all alone. You feel like the world is caving in on you. It's darkness. For those of you that maybe grew up In the Catholic church or in a more liturgical background, you know that the first candle that's lit at the beginning of Advent, the first candle on the Advent wreath is the candle that represents hope. It's actually called the hope candle or the prophet's candle. And in the first week of Advent, it symbolizes the anticipation of the coming Messiah and the hope that he brings to the world. So throughout the first week, Christians reflect on this theme of hope and how Jesus coming into the world brings hope to a hopeless and dark world. And the scripture readings and prayers that are often, you know, read during the first week of Advent after the hope candle has been lit kind of focus on the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about a coming Messiah who would bring hope. Prophecies like the one that Amber read before the one song that we sang in worship today. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, which was written about 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Skip down to verse six, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end what isaiah was saying is that the that one day the darkness will be interrupted with an inextinguishable light a light that will change everything and it's going to come through a child that will be born and that child will be the light for all of mankind and Isaiah was pointing forward to the day when Jesus would come and look at what the apostle John says about that very event when Jesus came into the world and John chapter 1 verse 1 he writes in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, he would say, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John is saying that the light that Isaiah talked about 750 years ago has finally come, and that light has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he came to bring hope to all of mankind. John is telling us that Jesus is the light that dispels the darkness that the hopelessness of this world brings. And if you want to escape that hopelessness, then you need to find the hope of Jesus because he is the ultimate hope. You know, there's two kinds of hope in this world. The first is things that you hope for. See, like these empty seats that I kind of illustrated earlier, we all have things that we're hoping for waiting for, praying for. And that's completely normal and natural. That's part of what it means to be human, to have things that you are hoping for in this life. But there's another kind of hope, and that's when you find someone to hope in. And see, when... When it comes to this, you need someone to hope in that is solid and secure because when the things that you're hoping for are uncertain and shaky, you need someone to hope in that is like an anchor that no matter what happens around you, that hope is not gonna be shaken. Jesus is the ultimate hope for mankind. We might have empty seats in this world, but that doesn't mean we have to have empty hearts. Jesus came to fill the emptiness of our hearts. See, some of you came to church for the first time. I don't know if it was last week or 20 years ago. You came to church for the first time because of something you were hoping for. There was something going on in your life that you figured, you know what, maybe I'll try religion. Maybe I'll try going to church, and maybe that thing I'm hoping for will actually come. But something happened along the way. You kept coming because you were introduced to a man named Jesus who gave you someone to hope in. And while the thing that you're hoping for might still not be actually in your life, that still might be an empty seat, God did something on the inside of you, and you developed a relationship. God got a hold of you, and now you're like, yes, you're still hoping for that thing, but you just want more and more of him. Who you're hoping in is greater than what you're hoping for. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you why we celebrate Christmas and why we have so much reason to be hopeful. And as I share these things with you, I'm praying it will make the gospel come alive to you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that the things you hear me say will give you food for thought and I'm really hoping will lead you to a point where you make a decision to put your hope in Jesus the Savior of the world. So last week I shared this verse of when, in Matthew's account of the nativity and the birth of Jesus, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, you know he wanted to divorce her quietly because he knew he wasn't the father, and so God had to send an angel to appear to him in a dream to assure him, hey, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's not lying, she's telling the truth. The child inside of her is of the Holy Spirit, And in verse 21 of Matthew 1, the angel says to Joseph, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the essence of why we celebrate Christmas and why we have so much reason to have hope. Who we have hope in. So here's the thing. He will save his people from their sins. If you grew up in church like me, how many times have you heard that phrase that Jesus came to save us from our sins? A 1,000? Thousand? 10,000? Thousand? I've been in church my whole life. I can't count the number of times I've heard that phrase. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard a Jesus freak or some Christian that you know talk about how Jesus came to save you from your sin. And we've heard that so many times that I think we've lost the impact and the power of that statement. So what, What does that mean, and why does that give us hope? First thing we need to understand is that sin is the problem. And all of us have sinned. Every single person who has ever lived in the history of time, except for Jesus, has sinned. We have missed the mark, which is what sin means. We have all fallen short of God's standard of righteousness and holiness and perfection. We've all broken his laws, we've all lied, we've all cheated, we've all stolen, we've all coveted, we've all lusted. We've all failed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. We've all failed to love and treat our neighbors as ourselves. We have all sinned and therefore we all need to be saved from our sins because sin has a penalty, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. We all need to be saved, so what does it mean to be saved? You guys, there is so much packed into that one word. I am convinced that if more people truly understand, understood the full implication of what salvation is and what it does in a person's life, there would be a whole lot less Christians that are living below their spiritual station in life. See, because as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we have access to every spiritual blessing that he has in his spiritual storehouses. And there is not an area of your life that won't be impacted when you grow in your knowledge and in your understanding of what it means to be saved. And so when the angel said, you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That word save in the original language in the Greek is the word sozo which is defined as to be delivered out of danger and brought into safety. So it's two parts. It's rescued from danger and restored to health, wholeness, and victory. It's two parts. You're saved from something for something or to something. Salvation isn't just one side of the spectrum. It's about also reaching the other. It's comprehensive. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes about our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, "For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So listen to this, we are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. We are not saved by our good works, regardless of what any priest or or church might say, but we are saved for good works. The process and the order is important. See, grace is accessed through faith, not by works. Grace is receiving something that you did nothing to earn that you did not deserve. If you try to earn grace through good works and by being a good person, then it's not grace anymore because then you had something to do with it. And the whole point is that you don't. It's God's free gift to you. You can't earn it. Grace is unmerited favor. But religion will try to convince you to access grace through your good works. That what you do or don't do determines whether or not you're actually going to get into heaven. And religion will kill you because it will keep you trying to earn what you have already been freely given through grace in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have received the free gift of salvation by grace through faith, you need to understand that that wasn't just a one-time event that happened however many years ago when you prayed the sinner's prayer. That's that may be when it began, but you need to understand that you are still currently being saved and your salvation will be fully realized at some point in the future. Paul speaks to that in his letter to the Romans. So in Romans chapter five, verses one through five, I'm gonna read this to you and then we're gonna unpack this. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand present. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So he's speaking about a hope of something future. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings right now because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And I love this. He says, hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Salvation is past, present, and future. I want to show you this because this is the reason I hope in Jesus. And as I share with you the reasons I hope in Jesus, I'm, man, I'm praying for those of you who've been Christians for 50 years and have lost your passion and excitement for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that this would be reignited in you. And as, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that as you hear about the reasons why I've decided to hope in Jesus, that you will come to a point where you're like, this sounds really good. I, I want to put my hope in Jesus too. It's the reason he came. It's the reason we celebrate at Christmas. It's the reason we have hope. The first reason I have hope in Jesus is because he has saved me from the penalty of sin. I hope in Jesus because he has saved me from the penalty of sin. See, in the next chapter, uh, Paul writes that the penalty or the wages of sin is death, is spiritual death and separation from God. And so because all of us have sinned, all of us are doomed for and eternity separated from God, unless the payment or the penalty of our sin is dealt with. See, but those who have put their hope and faith and trust in Jesus have been justified, Paul writes. Past tense. And justification is a legal term that means acquittal. It means that we have been released from having to pay the debt that we owed because of our sin. The moment I repented of my sins and put my faith in Jesus who paid for my sins by dying on the cross, that penalty for my sin was removed from me, and now when God looks at me, he sees someone that it's just as if I'd never sinned. So it's a great way for you to remember what the word justified means, that because of my trust in Jesus, uh, it's just as if I'd never sinned or just as if I'd always obeyed. And so when the enemy, you know, listen, I follow Jesus. I hope in Jesus because my past is absolved now. If you trust in Jesus, your sins, all of the things that you have done in the past has been forgiven. And if your past is anything like mine, that is really, 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 really good news. Because the enemy is gonna come and try to convince you that you're not worthy of God's grace, that you shouldn't be in church because, man, you're a sinner and you're, you know, he knows all your mistakes and he calls you by them. He says, you're an addict, you're a liar, you're a a thief, you're lazy. And it becomes what he calls you, That becomes your identity according to the accuser, Satan. But God knows all of your mistakes and yet he calls you son or daughter. Because your sins, the payment, the, the penalty of your sins has been wiped away. Oh, that's good. Come on, somebody. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, past tense. God, who is rich in mercy, saved you from the penalty of your sin, spiritual death and separation from him when you believed in him. I hope in Jesus because he has saved me from the penalty of having to spend eternity separated from his presence and his love. See, at a moment in the past when you believed God saved you, he gave you a new identity. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. You're now not the sum total of the mistakes you've made because those are all gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your sins from you and he casts them into the sea of forgetfulness. I hope in Jesus because he has saved me from the penalty of sin, separation from God. Number two, I hope in Jesus because he will one day save me from the presence of sin. So, in the passage that we read earlier, in in verse two, Paul writes this We boast in the hope of the glory of God. The future aspect of our salvation is what's known as glorification. So, I'm gonna teach you guys a little bit of theology. If you're taking notes, you can impress your friends with these 50 cent theological terms. All right, the first one was justification. The future aspect is glorification. This is the moment when we receive like the promise of our salvation. When God delivers us once and forevermore from the very presence of sin, when we get to spend an eternity of incomprehensible joy in his glory, when we receive our glorified bodies. I'm talking about heaven here. Forever in his presence. Paul calls this the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5. And hope implies future. We don't hope for things we have right now. We hope for things that are coming in the future. And those of us who have put our hope in Jesus live every day with the confident hope that he will one day save us from the very presence of sin. And that is a hope that cannot be broken because our hope is in the unchanging eternal God who has promised that those who believe in him will have everlasting life. See, I want to make sure that we understand biblical hope, because the English word that we use, hope, to translate the word that's used in the original language for hope, really don't mean the same thing. It's a very poor translation. See, because the English word for hope carries with it an element of uncertainty, even implied in how we define it. Like when someone says to you, how do you like, do you know that to be true? You're like, well, I don't know that to be true, but I hope so. Do you hear the uncertainty in the answer? Like, I'm not sure. It's kind of like a wishful thinking. It could be 50 50. I hope it's true, but I don't really know. See, that's not biblical hope. I love the definition that I heard this week in preparing for this message for biblical hope. Biblical hope is a life shaping certainty of something that has not happened yet, but you know will. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. And you know it will happen because the one who has conquered death, the one who is called faithful and true, the one who cannot lie, said it will happen. So we can have a confident expectation that we will spend eternity with him because Jesus proved who he claimed to be when he walked out of that tomb. If somebody can predict their own death, burial, and resurrection, and then to follow through with that, I'm going to put my trust in him. I love that. A life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. That's the hope we have as believers. Look at what John, look at what Jesus told John in speaking of this this hope of glory, of heaven one day. Revelation 21, 3 to 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I don't know about you, but oh my gosh, how I long for that day when He will wipe away every tear, when there will be no more sickness or sorrow or suffering or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know what the old order of things is? Sin. See, when we live with the confident expectation that he has prepared a better place for us, a place with no more sin, that should give you a profound hope for the future that demolishes any despair you would feel in the present. And it would change how you live in the present. See, how you live now is completely determined by your believed in future. I'm gonna say that again. How you live now is completely determined by your believed in future. And if you believe that Jesus had prepared a a better place for you in glory, then that would and should affect how you live today. See, salvation, we need to understand, is not just a past tense event, justification, justification, with future tense implications, glorification, if the whole goal of salvation was just to get a ticket into heaven, what good would that be for us while we still live here on the earth? Do we just wait for our time? Do we just live out our days waiting for the day we die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first? No, that sounds miserable. It's supposed to impact our present daily lives. But this impact will only be experienced to the degree that we actually apply our salvation. See, receiving salvation is different than applying salvation, than walking in it. That's why Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, receiving salvation is what rescues and redeems us. But applying our salvation is what restores us to wholeness and victory. So I hope in Jesus because he has saved me from the penalty of sin. He will save me one day from the presence of sin. And number three, I hope in Jesus because he is saving me from the power of sin right now. And that is good news. Going back to that passage in Romans five, Paul writes, not only do we hope in the future glory of God someday, but we also glory in our sufferings right now because we know that suffering is producing some things in us. It's producing perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. See, there's a suffering in the waiting, isn't there? There's a suffering in the meantime. Between the moment that I trusted in Jesus for salvation and he saved me from the penalty of sin, between that moment that happened when I was six years old and the moment at some point in the future where he will take me home and he will save me from the presence of sin. In between those two moments, there's a lot of suffering that we have to experience in this life. Suffering that is the result of sin. Because sin produces suffering. All brokenness that we experience in this life, broken relationships, addiction, all of those things is a result of sin. And there's a suffering in the waiting in the meantime. But when we hope in Jesus that suffering is not wasted, it's producing something in us. Perseverance and character and hope. And it's a hope that will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, Paul is telling us that the moment you placed your faith in Jesus here, we have to understand this as believers, okay? The moment you said, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you're the son of God, that you died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. At that moment, when you are justified, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It's called the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He's given to you as a deposit, as a sign and a seal of what's to come. And from that moment on, until the moment of glorification, He begins to work in you, delivering you and saving you from the power of sin. That's why I hope in Jesus, that's why it's good news that Jesus came 2,000 years ago to save people from their sin, not just the penalty of sin. That's just one small portion of our salvation. But he is right now saving me from the power of sin i don't have to be a slave anymore to my sinful desires salvation is a present process which paul talks about in romans 8 a couple chapters later he says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus because because through christ jesus the law of the spirit who now lives in you the law of the spirit of who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death now does that mean you're not going to struggle with sin anymore i wish i still struggle anybody who's a believer in jesus will tell you that they still struggle with sin as long as we have this body of flesh we will always struggle with a proclivity and a bent towards sin But now we have a power inside of us called the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead who is saving you from the power of sin. We all still struggle, but here's the thing. There should be something in us that wants to fight against that that pull towards sin. And I'm gonna say something that's, gonna come across really strong, but it needs to be said because I think this truth has been lost in the American church today in the West. If you don't have a desire in you to fight against the pull of sin, then you should seriously search your heart and ask God to show you whether or not you've actually received salvation at any point in the past. Because one leads to the other. The moment you are justified and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, he begins to work in you, both to will and to work. So he gives you the desire to do what pleases God and the power to do what pleases God. And we have to understand that biblically speaking, you can't have trusted in Jesus for salvation without also surrendering to his Lordship in your life. Believing in Jesus as Savior will change your eternity, but believing in Jesus as Lord will change how you live. And when we trust in Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, God Almighty, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of your spirit and begins to save you every day from the power of sin. Look a little bit later in chapter 5 where Paul writes, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, past tense, to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved present through his life? This was written to Christians. They were already saved. So there is an ongoing work of salvation over the power of sin that we need to gain a better understanding of. Having been justified, past tense, by belief in his sacrificial death, we are declared righteous but our salvation doesn't stop at the foot of the cross. If you're amazed at what his death accomplished for you, Paul is saying, how much more will be accomplished through his life, because now the Holy Spirit that gives life is inside of you, and his love has been poured out into your hearts, and now you have a power that's not your own to fight against the temptation and the power of sin. Come on, somebody, woo! I don't have to fight it on my own anymore. You don't have to fight it on your own anymore. I feel like I'm getting saved all over again up here. Thank you, Jesus, for my salvation. I'm so grateful. The fact that his spirit now lives in us means that our salvation should be a part of our everyday life and experience. He's renewing our minds, our souls, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions are being transformed by him on a daily basis. This is known as sanctification. So we learned about justification, glorification. This is sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy spirit through his presence in your life begins to go to work at conforming you more and more every day into the image of Jesus where he begins changing your thoughts your attitudes which eventually results in changed behaviors and we participate in this process through our spiritual disciplines through you know being in his word through being in prayer through being in Christian community by yielding, making the decision every day when we wake up, okay, God, I die to myself today and I choose to pick up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, have your way in me. But at the end of the day, yes, we participate in the process, but he's the one that does the work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he does the heavy lifting. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us in this process of sanctification as he saves us from the power of sin is to reveal to us some of the things that we have put our hope in that aren't him. See, because a lot of us put our hope in a lot of things and you can put your hope in money, you can put your hope in success, you can put your hope in relationships, you can put your hope in sex, You can put your hope in pleasure. There's a whole lot of things that you can put your hope in, but what Paul is trying to show us is that the Holy Spirit wants to show you that none of those things can hold your hope. Only Jesus is solid and secure and can hold your hope. So what are you hoping for this Christmas season? Or maybe a better question is, who have you put your hope in? What have you been putting your hope in? Getting back to Michael's story, he still has two empty seats. He still has things he's hoping for. He wants his relationship with his daughters to be restored. And I believe God can do that. I'm standing and praying and believing with him that God will do that. But I don't know if it will happen, or when it will happen. But the amazing thing about Michael's story is that as I was talking to him on the phone the other night, he said to me through tears that even though I haven't yet received the thing that I'm asking God for, that I've been waiting for, that I'm hoping for, I still have joy in my life because I hope in Jesus. See, even though he still has an empty seat, God has filled his empty heart because who he's hoping in is greater than what he's hoping for. We're still hoping that Jimmy will come home for Christmas. But while we wait for the empty seat to be filled, how do we wait? So for those of you that have, you know, an empty seat in your life, and it's been the thing that has kept you from even trusting in God, because you know what? If God were real, he would do this for me. how do we wait? How do we have hope while we wait for that empty seat to be filled? I'm here this morning to simply encourage you instead of focusing on the empty seat and the thing you're hoping for is to remind yourself this Advent season that Jesus came to save you from your sin. That he saved you from the penalty of sin. Spiritual death and separation from him forever. But not only that, he will one day save you from the presence of sin. And we'll get to spend eternity in his presence in a glorified body. Oh Lord, I can't wait for my glorified body. And while I wait for that day to come, his Holy Spirit is living in me. Giving me the power and saving me from the power of sin. So that's how we wait with hope. Can I encourage you this morning? to spend less time. It doesn't mean these things don't matter. It doesn't mean these things don't hurt. It doesn't mean you stop praying for them. But who you hope in is greater than what you're hoping for. The reason we have hope at Christmas is because Jesus came to save us from our sin. From the penalty of sin, one day from the presence of sin, and right now from the power of sin. And that is a hope that will not disappoint Amen. I thought a good way to end today's message would be to take communion together. And so when you walked in today, hopefully you received one of these communion cups from one of the greeters standing at the doors. If you did not receive one of these, go ahead and raise your hand right now and our ushers will begin to make their way around the auditorium and leave your hand up until an usher finds you. We've read a lot from Paul's epistles today. And there's one more passage I wanna read to you as the ushers pass these out. Paul would write to the Christians in the city of Corinth, his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. And he's writing about what we're about to do. He's writing about the Lord's Supper, taking communion. He says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And then look at this next verse. This is the verse that, this is the reason I chose this passage to read to you as we take communion. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So Advent and communion is about remembering what Jesus has done But as we do this, it's also announcing what he did until he comes again. It's looking back and it's looking ahead. It's announcing the Lord's death to those around us, our brothers and sisters who are in the same season of waiting and suffering and having to deal with sin and all the garbage that sin brings. We're announcing the Lord's death and the power of salvation until he comes again. It's a reminder to have hope because God is a promise keeping God and he is coming again. That's why we do communion. To remember what he did in purchasing our salvation to save us from the penalty of sin. But it's also to look ahead and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But this isn't something we should do lightly. In fact, in the next verse, Paul writes, anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And so this morning, I wanna do just that. I wanna provide us an opportunity in a moment of silence to examine ourselves. Scripture is very clear that only those who believe in Jesus, who have trusted in him for salvation, should take communion. And so if you're here this morning and you have not yet made the decision to surrender your life to Jesus, I would kindly ask you to refrain from taking communion in this moment. This is one of the sacraments of our faith. This is a holy thing. And if you are a believer in Jesus, Paul encourages you to examine yourself, to not take this in an unworthy manner, because by doing so, you are... Sinning against the body and blood of the Lord? How do we take it in an unworthy manner without considering what Jesus did to free you from the other things that you've put your hope in? So I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes in this moment. And I just wanna ask you to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you and speak to you about anything that you've been hoping for, or anyone that you've been hoping in that has pulled your attention away from the only one who's worthy of holding on to your hope, and that's Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Go ahead and peel back the cellophane seal and grab the wafer Jesus as we hold this wafer in our hands that represents your body you instructed us to do this in remembrance of you so in this season of Advent in the season of waiting waiting for your arrival, Lord, we look back to God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And we thank you for the love that compelled you to lay down your life willingly, to let your body be broken so that the brokenness in us could be made whole. Jesus, we remember you and we remember your sacrifice. And I pray, God, that you would restore the joy of our salvation this Advent season. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat the bread together. Now go ahead and peel back the foil seal. Your word says that without the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, it was a requirement in your penalty for sin that a sacrifice had to be made, that blood had to be shed. His life is in the blood. So, Lord, we do what you instructed us to do, and as often as we drink this, we do it in remembrance of you, the new covenant that was sealed in your blood, a promise to us, Lord, that you had made a new way for sinners to be declared righteous, to be given access to the throne room, to be able to run into the throne room of grace to receive help in times of need, to be restored to a relationship with our heavenly father. It's because of the blood. And there's still power in the blood of Jesus. And God, I thank you as we prepare to ingest this into our bodies and it becomes a part of us. I pray that that physical act would be a reminder of a spiritual reality that your spirit dwells within us And gives us the power over sin that you are saving us at this very moment as we continue to surrender our lives to you. You're saving us from the power of sin. We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore because we are now your children, filled with your spirit, and it's because you spilled your blood. And so, God, as we partake of this, not only do we thank you for that. But we proclaim this until you come again. So God, may this act be a reminder to us. May it be an encouragement to our faith. And may it be a declaration to those around us who don't yet know you as we live our lives that you are coming again. Lord, may that believed in future determine how we live today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink the juice together. Now, with all heads bowed and eyes still closed, I wanna ask one more question as we continue to pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard the gospel explained that way. Maybe you've never understood why it was so important that Jesus had to come to save people from sin. Maybe you didn't know what sin was and what salvation was. But now as you're here this morning, maybe there is something on the inside of you that is screaming and is realizing that what you heard today is truth. What you're feeling is the Holy Spirit inside of you saying, I did that for you. And so with all heads bowed and eyes closed, without any fanfare or any manipulation, I just wanna ask the question, if you are here today and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus yet, but you want to know that the penalty of sin you've been saved from it, that you'll one day have a home in glory with him, and that in the meantime, you'll have the Holy Spirit to fight off the power of sin. If that's you here today and you want to be saved, you want to surrender your life to Jesus, just shoot your hand up all across this place. Is there anybody else, anybody here today that says, I want to be saved from my sin. I want to know that I have a home in heaven one day. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Is there anybody here? I know that's not a popular message in in this culture today, but anybody that says, yeah, I want to be saved. Right here in the middle, I see that hand. God bless you. Is there anybody else? I see that other hand in the middle, further back. God bless you. If you're watching online, you click the link in the comment section of whatever platform you're watching on. One last time before we all pray together. Anybody that would be bold enough to say, I'm a sinner. And now I know why Jesus came. And I want to be saved. Just raise your hand. I see that hand over there on the right. God bless you, I'm proud of you. Over here on the left as well, God bless you. Church, I don't want anybody praying alone, so will you all join together with those who are surrendering their life to receive salvation. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save me from my sin. I confess that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I believe that Jesus is the son of God who died to save me from my sin. I believe he rose again and that he lives forevermore. So Jesus, I confess my sin and I ask you to forgive me of all of them. Wash me and make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the power to follow you and serve you for the rest of my life. Say these words, say, Jesus, I give you my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen and amen. Church, can we put our hands together and welcome those born into God's family today?